The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we are joined by the Artistic Director of the Roundabout Theatre Company, Todd Hames. Roundabout in recent years has given us shows including Sunday in the Park with George, 110 in the Shade, The Apple Tree, The Pajama Game, some years ago, Nine, the acclaimed revival of Cabaret, and the 1993 revival of She Loves Me. Let's not forget the plays like The Ritz and Pygmalion, and a lot of shows that had not been seen in New York previously, like Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, Beyond Glory, Mr. Marmalade, Pig Farm, The Overwhelming. The list goes on and on and on, and we could take most of the show talking about that. But welcome, Todd. Thank you. Glad to be here. Todd, as one of the largest not-for-profit theaters in the country, what do you see as the mission for Roundabout? Um, well, the core mission for Roundabout is um, to do uh, the classics of theater. We define classics rather broad, broadly so that we include contemporary classics like Tom Stoppard and Brian Friel and Arthur Miller, as well as obviously the more traditional classics like Shaw and Ibsen and Chekhov, um, and also the great musicals of musical theater, um, with an emphasis on doing musicals that are not going to be revived commercially every seven years. So, for example, we wouldn't do uh, Gypsy or Guys and Dolls unless there was a compelling artistic reason for us to do it as opposed to a commercial theater. And we try to do those, obviously, with the great artists of theater, uh, both in terms of directors and, and actors and designers. And, and that's our central mission. The other thing that is sort of at our core is that we are committed to the subscription Model, so we do uh, try to cater most of our uh, not just programming, but also all of our services and customer service and our uh, relationships with the public to the subscribers first. They get the best seats, they get the best price, they get the best service, um, and we do that unabashedly. And we have forty-three thousand subscribers who have been incredibly loyal to us. Um, and um, and then, as as people know, over the years we've branched out a bit into some new plays and, and other ventures, which we can talk about. But the core of the roundabout, I think, will always be sort of the classical theater. Well, you actually have four theaters in three different buildings. Two of them are Broadway houses. Two right. are off-Broadway, one in the Laura Pels, the other the experimental black box mm -hmm. below the Laura Pels. Does that give you a great opportunity to do diverse work, to do established as hits like The Pajama Game, for example, and also some of the newer work that hasn't been done before? The original genesis of the Laura Pels Theater was that, this goes back probably 10 years, but we were getting asked, I was getting asked by, by playwrights whose revivals we did um, to do their new play. And, you know, our answer was just to Arthur Miller or Harold Pinter or whoever, our answer was just, we don't do new plays. And after a while, it seemed kind of be seemed to kind of be silly to tell these great playwrights that we wouldn't do their plays just because we don't do new plays since we had such a good relationship with them. So uh, that was the genesis of the Laura Pels. Um, and uh, Laura Pels herself obviously was very interested in that and provided the initial grant to build the first Laura Pels Theater. And, and I think in the first season, although my memory is a little bit erratic, I think we did both a Pinter and a Friel, a new Pinter and Brian Friel in that first season. And um, over the years, uh, it, it, it's largely been for new plays by established playwrights, although we've had a couple of younger playwrights, um, younger in their career. And then and then the Black Box Theater, which was a space we had below the Laura Pels, has just evolved truly out of a real sort of uh, need, I think, in the community to give young playwrights who are really early in their career the opportunity to have first-class productions 
but in a small black box theater, uh, having all the advantages of roundabout size, um, but uh, don't they don't have the pressure of a million dollar production in the Laura Pelos Theater? And quite honestly, I think the critics view it differently too. Although the critics may not admit this, I think they tend to, in some to some extent, judge productions in the context of where they see them. So they're going to judge them a little bit rougher in a 400-seat off-Broadway theater and even rougher in a Broadway theater than they might in an off-Broadway off space. That's just my speculation. I can't prove it. But anyway, that was the genesis of the black box, and we did our first show there last year. It's an enormously money-losing proposition. Uh, the board has really had to go out and raise money just for it. It costs us between 150000 and 200000 for each production, uh, even at capacity. We only charge $20 for the tickets and also bringing in a younger audience, obviously. But the main purpose is to serve these playwrights, and God knows there are plenty of talented playwrights out there. You made the comment in talking about the mission that the musicals that you do aren't the ones that would be revived every seven years or so. In this day and age... What is going to be done commercially and what can be done for not-for-profit? Has the line completely blurred? Well, I don't know if the line is blurred on the not-for-profit end. It may be, it's, it's a hard question to answer because it depends on what you view as really a risk. Most people don't view you know, uh, Gypsy or, uh, or Fiddler on the Roof or um, Guys and Dolls as a risk in terms of the critics' response to the piece. They may review it as a risk in terms of the production. Um, I'm a little bit more interested in the in the musicals that are, um, by virtue of them not traditionally being massive commercial sellers like those musicals, are not likely to get revived because they're just not considered economically that good a risk, whether it's 110 in the Shade, as you mentioned, or Apple Tree, or uh, Sunday in the Park with George, or Assassins. I'm not making a value judgment. I think these musicals should be revived. I just don't think they will receive first-class revivals because they're so expensive to do, and producers view them as, quote-unquote, not commercial. Um, every once in a while, something comes along. I mean, for example, nobody will believe this because it sounds so insane, but the reason we ended up doing Pajama Game, which is not normally something we would do um, with Harry Connor Jr., is that they literally could not get a Broadway theater. Nobody... Uh, I don't know who they went to, but none of the Broadway theater owners thought it was worthy of a Broadway theater. So uh, the, the production had completely fallen apart. Um, at that point, the production just considered of Kath, consisted of Kathleen and Harry. Um, and it, it completely fallen apart. Harry was booking other gigs. And then they came to me in a last-ditch effort. I had a long relationship with... Um, with Harry's manager and from something else, and we just put it together really quickly. Normally, we would have done it in a bigger theater, but the American Airlines was all that was available, so we did it. It was a huge hit. Now everybody goes, well, why why was it done not for profit? Well, literally, if we had not done it, it never would have been done because it had completely fallen apart. Um, so Cabaret, similar odd situation. I mean, normally, we would not do a big Broadway revival of Cabaret, the reason we did that production is because a young director who at the time was unknown called me, whose name was Sam Mendes, and said, um, I have a production I did at the Dunmar Warehouse of Cabaret. I think it was really good. It can only be done in a 500-seat cabaret space. No commercial producer will do it. Would you be interested? And I, sort of not knowing what I was getting myself in for, because it was a rough road to get to the opening night, I, I said yes. And then we spent about four years getting it on. And... Um, we would never have done that if it wasn't that sort of artistically adventurous production. It was starring a man named Alan Cummings, who nobody had ever heard of in America. So what doesn't seem risky in retrospect, because it ran for six years, at the time was one of the biggest risks we ever took. 
Let me ask you the same question about plays, because you've just concluded a run of Les Liaisons Dangereuses, which was a hit commercial production 20-plus years ago. At what point does a play need the support of a not-for-profit to be seen again, and at what point can it still be seen as a commercial venture? You know, it's a harder question to answer because I think it's, to some extent, you know, the only plays that are commercial right now, I mean, I'm not an expert on the subject, just but from just observing it, the only plays that are commercial right now are plays that either receive absolutely extraordinary reviews across the board and particularly raves from the New York Times um, and or plays that have such big stars that it transcends reviews. Um, and, and by big stars, I mean, you know, Julia Roberts or whoever, you pick your big star. So, you know, Les Liaison is a very big, very expensive play to do. Would, in the 2008, 9, 10 period of time, would some commercial producer take a risk on that play? Um, I, there's no answer to that question. They hadn't, obviously. Um, Christopher Hampton was very interested in having us do it. Um, you know, I suppose if they got a big enough star, they might be interested, but it's a really expensive play to produce. Um, and uh, so I would say, you know, it's a grayer area, but the plays we do are ones we think um, we're less worried about the commercial aspect of it in the t- in the sense of, of, of the play revivals. We're more worried about whether we, we can bring a certain sort of um, artistic integrity to the production and the artists we really want to work with and um, and something that our subscribers really want to see. You mentioned stars. Certainly the people who subscribed around about have seen a steady stream of stars. So how do you cultivate those relationships and have people come for what is generally known to be much less money yeah. than they would make if they were in a commercial production? Yeah, I mean the actors get paid I think $1,250 a week, which is both minimum and maximum. Um, and um, it's a very small amount of money for any of them and certainly a fraction of what the more celebrated actors would make in other venues. Um, I think, uh, I think. first of all, I'll answer the question, why do they do it? And then I'll answer the question, how do we cultivate them? Um, I, I think they do it because they do feel that it's a... Look, I mean, the commercial theater, in for the most part, uh, the, the money comes first and art comes second because that's, the, that's why it's called commercial theater. Are there producers who care as passionately about art? Absolutely. I don't mean that as a, you know, to tar anybody, but, you know, obviously commercial theater is looked on first and foremost as a commercial enterprise. The not-for-profit theater, art comes first and money comes second. And so I think a lot of the artists trade off making less money for feeling sort of 100% supported in an environment where they don't have to make a very long time commitment. They know everybody is deeply appreciative of them being there. We get the best directors and designers. Um, we treat them extremely nicely, um, and uh, we really make an effort to have it be a totally sort of artistically positive environment. The other thing that really helps, frankly, is we have 43,000 people who are going to come see the show. So they're less dependent on reviews to have an audience, and it doesn't make them feel as much pressure because even though you know actors may be famous, when they're doing a commercial production, they actually really do feel a responsibility to sell tickets. Um, on their name, and that can be an enormous burden. It sounds funny to say about someone who's famous and successful, but they're human, and they feel that burden and responsibility. And with us, since the theater is 75% sold before you know, before they get there, uh, they don't have the same pressure to, ha- to bring in the audience. So I think that's the reason they do it, and, and we do it. We work on it by cultivating these relationships and obviously trying to do pieces that are of interest to them. So we tend to do 
I don't just think of a play and do it. I tend to do plays that directors I'm interested in are interested in working on uh, and or actors I'm interested in are interested in being in. Um, and so it's a much more artist-driven process than anything else. Well, some of the stars you've had in the past couple of years include Lynn Redgrave, Kate Burton, Alec Baldwin, uh, Harry Connick Jr. in The Pajama Game, uh, Kelly O'Hara, Audrey McDonald, Kristen Chenoweth. Could commercial theater afford those people? Could commercial theater afford the productions that you do because they have a different reality? You're doing a lot of limited-run productions, like The Pajama Game was intended to be a limited run. You did get Harry Connick Jr. and Kelly O'Hara in a stellar cast. Could that same show have been done commercially had a theater, say, been available? Well, I think in retrospect it could have because the show got rave reviews and would have sold out. I mean, we had we we were it was ridiculous. We were in a seven hundred seat theater doing this large musical, and it was sold out at every performance before the reviews and after the reviews. It was insane. Um, so, in retrospect, yes, it could have been in a fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred seat theater, paid the actors and paid the actors more, and at least broken even and maybe made money. Um, but obviously, that's not what the theater owners thought in prospect, which is why they couldn't get a theater. But, you know, I mean, Harry Connick is, um, it's rare that you find, a st- we, we have been very fortunate. I think two of the greatest, maybe two of the three greatest musical theater performances from superstars on Broadway that were making their Broadway debut, uh, we've had the pleasure of hosting, which are Antonio Banderas and Harry Connick. Um, I would probably think of putting um, Hugh... Um, Jackman. Jackman in that same category. We did not have – it was a commercial production. But when I think back in the last decade and it's like the greatest musical theater uh, stars who came from out of the blue from movie stardom um, or from, from, from musical – from the music world, uh, those three certainly come to mind and we've had the pleasure of having two of them. My point is, A, we've been lucky and B, um, there are not that many people you discover who are huge, huge stars and also are capable of – being the lead in a Broadway musical, even though they've never done it before. I mean, you watched Antonio Banderas's performance in Nine, which is a, just a phenomenally difficult role. It's an operatic score. It's the, you know, by far the largest role in the musical. And this guy had never been on an American stage before, and it was sort of astonishing. Now, you know, the credit goes to David Laveau for getting him and working with him. And uh, but again, it's only in retrospect when we announced these things, people kind of made fun of us for. You know, going for these stars who have never done theater before, and then of course afterwards they all want to get them. Well, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, well, we're not always right. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about about you and, and how you got going. Now, you have an MBA from Yale. Mm-hmm. You're you were a businessman. Mm-hmm. What happened when you got out of Yale? Where did you go from there? Before you ended up at the Vanderbilt? Well, I'd been doing theater. I'd started as a stage manager in high school, and then became a producer in college, and then. Um, upon graduating the University of Pennsylvania, I just had this sense that um, being an English major, uh, I needed more education. Coming, I think, from you know, it's sort of typically New York Jewish parents who go, "Well, you should get a, you should get a law degree." My father was a lawyer, and me going, "But I don't want to be a lawyer," and mm-hmm. them going, "But it couldn't hurt," um, which is true. I suppose it couldn't hurt unless you're the person who has to go to school for three years and study it, which I didn't want to do. But I think some of that sort of stuck with me, and I sort of felt undereducated. So I figured, well, I'll get an MBA because that could only help in any business, including theater. And of course, I, I was very lucky to get into Yale because that my master plan was to take courses at the drama school, which I did, as well as at the business school. And um, and when I graduated, it, it really was uh, 
although I sort of did it kind of because I didn't know what else to do uh, education-wise, as I just said, it turned out to kind of be the perfect combination because I came out into the theater marketplace at a time, I think, which is 1980, when a lot of theaters had grown to a certain size, been founded by artists, and then as they matured financially, gotten into terrible financial trouble because the artists who had brilliant artistic ideas weren't able to manage them that well. And I, I don't want to name all the individual theaters, but a lot, you know, a lot of them are gone now that were very prominent when I came to New York. So um, it, it actually having the MBA turned out to be a great background. And the uh, first theater I went to was the Westport Playhouse in Westport, Connecticut, which had bad financial problems at the time, but I loved doing 11 plays in 11 weeks, and it was an incredible education. And back those the, the final years of Starstock, where they really did do 11 plays with 11 different stars. Um, and then uh, I went to the Hartman Theater in Stanford, Connecticut, now defunct, which uh, had terrible financial problems, uh, and which I frankly didn't enjoy that much because I never just thought that the work was particularly meritorious. And, um, and Stanford at the time, uh, it was just not in the most pleasant area to be in. Um, and I always thought that people who wanted serious theater went either to New York or to New Haven. And uh, and I guess in retrospect, I was right, because two years after I left, they went under. And then I got this opportunity to come to Roundabout, which had the worst financial problems of any of them. Uh, but, you know, I was 26 years old, and um, I could afford to take a risk because I didn't have a family. And my wife uh, couldn't leave New York City because she was in her internship and residency. So I couldn't go to the Pittsburgh Public Theater or someplace like that. So I figured, what the hell, I'll go there. And that's how I went to Roundabout. And obviously, I've been unbelievably lucky and stayed there for 25 years. Well, let's be clear about what you walked into. The theater had filed for Chapter 11. In 77. So so it was already... It six had been years. Six of, years yeah. of Chapter 11, which is amazing that they were even still Function. around. And you went in in a managerial role, not an I was artistic a managing role. director. Gene Feist was the artistic director who was the founder, um, considerably older than me, um, and very welcoming. And, you know, at that point, kind of desperate to have somebody help him through this financial mess. And let's explain where Roundabout was, because part of the story, not just financially, Roundabout at that time was really known for doing classical work. It really was mm -hmm. uh, Shaw and Ibsen and, and work yeah. like that. A lot of shows with Phil Bosco was yes. one of the stalwarts of the company. Um, and it had been operating since 1965. 65. It was at the point you joined it already on its second theater? It was on West 23rd Street, which I guess was its second because we still had this little West 26th Street theater, which people remember was under a supermarket. And we were on West 23rd Street. Um, we were about to – well, we didn't know it at the time, but we were about to get evicted from that. But even then, I have to say, Howard, that one of the things that appealed to me about Roundabout having – coming from the Hartman – um, was that I, you know, the roundabout for all its problems, even then had about 16,000 subscribers. And I felt that whatever their issues, they clearly had a, a place in the marketplace and a purpose and a mission that had a certain degree of clarity and importance to the 16,000 people who were coming. So, uh, although I didn't really know the depth of the financial problems, um, you know, I was attracted to what the theater did. And, and, you know, it's one of those things, it's sort of like surgery, you know. You get through it, and after it's over, you think about, well, that was horrible. I wouldn't want to go through that again. But if you knew everything in advance, you'd be much more scared than you were. You know, I, you know, I, if I knew what I was walking into at Roundabout, I, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. But I really didn't. And uh, you get through it one day at a time. So how do you go in what I believe was a course of about seven years from being the managing director or executive director of the theater to becoming its artistic director? 
in it was very simple. In over the course, I, I never had any interest in being an artistic director because in those days, um, artistic directors in the not-for-profit world always were directors, and it was kind of heresy to think of anybody going from management end or really from any other end into into being an artistic director other than a director. But over the six or seven years that I was there, I felt you know that I I probably could be an artistic director in the producing sense of the word, really more of a producer, which is what I am. Um, and then when Gene decided to retire, or 89 or 90 or whenever that was, Gene Feist, I, you know, said to the board, um, I'd like to have a shot at being artistic director. I think I would have called myself producer if not for the fact that artistic director sort of had a certain meaning in the not-for-profit theater, and I wanted to be clear what my job was, um, even though I have no interest in directing and never did. And the board, and I'm not being disingenuous when I say this or self-deprecating, the board you know, really didn't know any better at the time. And instead of doing a national search, uh, where they probably would have hired somebody much more qualified for the job, um, because the theater was at that point sort of financially stable. Um, and I can think of a number of people I would have hired over me, um, a mutual friend of ours, Mark Lamos, being, you know, some people, like really good directors. But they didn't really know any better. They just kind of knew me, and they felt grateful to me for helping with the financial problem. So I think they sort of thought, give the kid a shot. Um, so they did, and it was, I mean, it wasn't, I, I had to learn on the job. It was It was tough at the beginning for me, but obviously an incredible opportunity. Given what you say about what was commonly done at that time, what was the response in the artistic community to a manager becoming oh, an I artistic think it was, director? Uh, to the extent that there was a response, it, it ranged from totally uh, not interested to negative. Um, I, you know, at the time, I did not feel particularly embraced. It was... Uh, it really was a world. It's changed now. When you look at most of the New York theaters, they're run by not non-directors. But at the time, you know, in the glory days of Peter Zeisler and TCGs, you know, artistic and management are separate and equal, but never the twain shall meet or some, some strange philosophy. Um, you know, I didn't feel particularly welcomed, uh, but I was too busy, you know, trying to do the job <laughs> to think about it that much. But it was it was harder, of course. It was harder than I thought it would be. Um, but uh, it was an incredible opportunity and not, not one I, I recognize, not one that I would have gotten anywhere else. And um, it happened rather quickly. And so, you know, um, as I said, I think the first few years were rocky. And still, after all these years, the part of the job I feel much more... Um, uncertain about after all these years is still obviously, you know, sort of the artistic part of it more than the management end because there's something sort of tangible about management whereas we all know the artistic part of it uh, for anybody in the theater is is part of it is planning and talent and skill and all that but part of it is just fortune. You don't know when, you know, the chemistry is going to click and how many times have we all been to a movie where we love every actor in it and we love the director and the movie is just terrible. Well, they didn't set out to make a bad movie. They set out to make a good movie and it just didn't – it all didn't happen and that's why it's art. Um, so it's still a challenge for me, which I guess is sort of what makes it both scary and exciting still after all these years. Well, you had already been with Roundabout for several years at that point when you became artistic director. Did you already have established contacts with the directors, with the artists, with the actors, or is that a new area for you then to, to, to get it into? Was, it was develop? kind of new because uh, at that point we didn't have what would be considered the great directors working for us. And, of course, you know, me just calling them out of the blue and saying, do you want to do a show with us, didn't necessarily attract them because I was sort of a nobody and, and Roundabout did not have... I wouldn't say it had the best artistic reputation at the time, you know, so even though we had uh, stabilized it financially, it was sort of considered kind of an old-fashioned theater and stayed, and 
something else very fortunate happened at the time, which again is only in retrospect that I realize how fortunate it was, which is we were by this point we were on Seventeenth uh, Street. We had built what's now called the Union Square Theater, and um, we were on a year-to-year lease at the time, and we were afraid that the landlord, who was very nice to us, but we were afraid they were going to sell the building, which they ended up not doing. But the time we were afraid, and I convinced the board that we should look for a home that had more than one-year <laughs> leases. Um, so I looked around the city, and, and by total circumstance, the only theater I found happened to be a theater called the Criterion Center, which was a sort of relatively new 500-seat Broadway theater that had been built by a guy named Charlie Moss, and he had been operating for a while, but he wanted to rent it out. And so he rented it to me for seven years. And uh, at the time, although it sounds funny, um, the idea of moving to Broadway, first of all, was not on my agenda. I was just trying to find a space. And second of all, uh, there was a lot of ambivalence by the board because it was 1990 or 91, and Times Square was at the worst of a recession and buildings were abandoned and everybody thought no, none of our subscribers would come to Times Square. But it was such a beautiful building and I believed that they would and obviously ultimately they did. But it was a big break because it moved roundabout from off-Broadway to Broadway and by being on Broadway and Tony eligible, I think it sort of got us more attention and which allowed us to attract different artists. And also, in that era, Times Square was not the nicest of neighborhoods, not like it is now. <laughs> Horrible. I mean, literally, the, what's now called the Bertelsmann Building, which was right across the street from us on 45th Street, had literally been completed and then abandoned by the developer because there were no tenants. They locked the door and it was empty for a couple of years. It's unimaginable now, but that's the way it was then. So how did you convince the board that this was the thing to do? We did a lot of due diligence. I mean, we did surveys of our subscribers. We had to get uh, union contracts ironed out in advance. We had to do budget projections, and then we hoped that we were right, obviously. Um, and, uh, and Charlie Moss really was incredibly generous in the deal that he gave us to get us to come there. And, um, and you know, uh, like anything else, it involves a lot of um, luck. And we were, we were fortunate we came into the Broadway community as really only the second not-for-profit on Broadway, uh, although maybe Circle in the Square was still operating then. It was, I guess. Um, and then what happened in, uh, within two years of getting there is that we um, had this seminal production of Anna Christie um, with Natasha Richardson and Liam Neeson, which again was just totally fortuitous. Not I, I didn't know it was going to be a seminal production, but it got us Tony Awards and a great deal of attention. And we did our first musical, which again was an enormous stretch for us financially and artistically. And it seems funny at the time I was listening to you, John, read off the list of musicals we've done, and we've done so many now. At the time, we had not done a musical, and nobody would give us their musical because they said Roundabout doesn't do musicals, and why should we let you have our property, which, in fact, they were right about. Um, but a young, young director named Scott Ellis had brought me She Loves Me, and it was his passion, not mine, and we did it, and it turned out to be sort of a perfect production um, that Scott did with just spectacular choreography by an unknown choreographer at the time named Rob Marshall and um, a Tony Award-winning performance by Boyd Gaines. and moved commercially after our run and sort of started our whole musical run. Um, if that had flopped, if She Loves Me had been a flop, I don't think we ever would have done another musical. I mean, that's how far out in the limb we were financially. As we're talking about the role of the artistic director and, and you moving into that and then the productions that advance the theater, <clears throat> what's your aesthetic? Do you have one? Do you have one you can describe? Well, it's hard for... You know, it's funny. I, I don't think of myself that way because I guess I think of myself... I don't think of myself as an artist. Let's put it that way. I think of myself as a producer. And I think of my aesthetic as being, if there is one, as being sort of widely varied and also, frankly, taking into account the interest of the audience and the interest particularly of our subscribers. I 
for example, have slightly more interest in pieces that might be considered um, a little more, I don't know what word you would want to use, avant-garde or experimental. Um, so, you know, new plays like Mr. Marmalade and Pig Farm uh, are of more interest to me, I think, than they are to our subscribers. And there's no question that I have a real passion for uh, Harold Pinter, um, which uh, does set, tend to sell a lot of single tickets and attract great actors, but our subscribers, generally speaking, don't like to see Pinter plays. So I'm I'm very aware of the fact, uh, and I, I don't find it at all a burden. It's, I just have to think about it. I'm very aware of the fact that I have to program for the audience first and myself second. Now, obviously, within that, I try to work with directors that really turn me on, and I try to find, if I can, and if the piece warrants it, uh, you know, a director that will kind of reinvent the piece. It doesn't mean complete deconstruction. Um, I think there are other smaller theaters, like, let's say, the New York Theater Workshop, that do that and do it really well with, you know, European directors who sort of have had a bat gabbler in a bathtub and I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, it can be fantastic. We are obviously trying to appeal to a large audience. But having said that, you know, I think, for example, that um, the production of Pygmalion that we did, it was a particular director's vision of doing that play as it was originally written in a way that it's not normally done uh, in an in a adaptation that's not normally done anymore. It's, it's longer and it's different than what most people are used to, which are sort of takeoffs from the movie. Um, so that kind of appealed to me. I just thought it would be, and you know, frankly, I think some of the critics embraced it, and some of the critics said, you know, why aren't you just doing? Um, in fact, some of the critics actually said, "What happened to the songs?" I mean, it was sort of bizarre, you know. But it's interesting to me. You mentioned Pygmalion. You had done a Pygmalion Many years uh, ago. in maybe the late '80s, early '90s. You were going to be doing Hedda Gabler this mm-hmm. season. You mentioned before we got on the air, of course, that you'd done one previously. The opportunity to go back as a producer and look at these plays again. We hear about directors or actors wanting to revisit pieces. What uh, What's the bar that meets the threshold for you to want to go back and, and do a show that you may have offered your subscribers, albeit right. 10, 15, no, 20 years earlier? No, it's a really earlier. good question. I mean, I think that it's, um, for me, and it's sort of a personal thing, if we do a play, first of all, most of the plays that we do, it goes without saying, I, are plays that I love. I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm right and everybody else is wrong, but going into it, I, I do love the play. Um, and when a production fails, as our original production or our first production of Hedda Gabler did, um, uh, it failed with the critics and with the audience, and I have to say it was not a success. I mean, I, I agree with them. Um, when a production fails, it sort of makes me more want to do it right. <laughs> so if I can wait 10 years or whatever it is, and if it's a classic play like Hedda Gabler that bears uh, a new production every 10 or 15 years, then then it's sort of the idea of trying it again and trying to get it right <laughs> does really excite me. Um, as does, you know, for example, I, I sort of have this fantasy of doing a, I don't know if it will happen, but a 20th anniversary production of She Loves Me uh, for the opposite reason. I thought it was an absolutely perfect production that Scott and Rob did, and I would love to have them repeat that production with a whole new cast because, frankly, uh, I just don't think it gets any better than that. Whether they want to and whether that will happen, um, I don't know. But So, yes, it's nice to be in the position of being able to do that if you, if you can and want to. Well, you have an MBA. You started as a managing director, meaning mm-hmm. the business side of things. Now you're the artistic director. When you're making decisions, putting together a schedule or, or staging a show, what hat do you wear? Do you wear the business hat? Do you wear the artistic hat? And if there's a discrepancy between I want to do this wonderful production and the cost factor, who wins? Well, it's a complicated question to answer because it's complicated in my own head. I think 
look, I can never, the, the financial part of it is always where I came from. And having been through such problems in the early decade, um, you know, I, I sort of have a depression mentality. So I, I never don't worry about the money. Um, and obviously, you know, the money is so related to the artistic choices. Uh, on the other hand, I look back on the shows that we've done that have been most successful, and sometimes those are the ones that involve the greatest financial risk. Uh, so I try, I try to walk the line between making a prudent judgment financially and doing something that I think that turns me on, keeping in mind that you know you can't predict what the reviews are going to be. I, I honestly, I have to say, I, me- I feel more pressure than ever to have stars because. Uh, they do sell single tickets, and we have to sell a lot of single tickets. And at a not-for-profit, I not only feel pressure to have stars, but I feel pressure to have stars who are great theater actors because uh, in the commercial theater, and I won't mention any names, you can get away with having a star who was famous but not a great theater actor and get bad reviews and sell all the tickets and, and have it be considered a success because you made money. Uh, in the not-for-profit theater, that's not a success. That's what's called a failure. In the not-for-profit theater, what's a success is is doing really fine work. And so I feel an extra burden in looking for these stars and trying to get them to work for no money to also get people who I'm confident are going to be more than stage-worthy. Well, when you take that risk, I mean, I can think of a few examples. Although Anne H. had been uh, a replacement in Proof, she did a phenomenal job in 20th Century for you, Carla Gugino. Um, who I didn't recall having stage no. credits, you are still taking an enormous risk, even if these are people who have fame elsewhere. What's what's your process in, in deciding whether or not to take the leap with them? In some cases, um, it's often it's trusting a, a director's judgment that I trust. Um, in the case of Carla, I mean, specifically in the case of Carla, she actually auditioned. Um, and in the case of Anne Heche, um we, if I'm not mistaken, um, we spent some time talking to Dan Sullivan, who directed Proof, um, and whose judgment I trust enormously, and and um, and Walter, who was our director, trusted enormously. Uh, it's never guaranteed, um, but uh, usually, if a director has already done a stage production with an actor and seen them, you know, they can tell whether they're going to fill a theater. I don't mean economically fill a theater, but you know terms of their voice and their ability. You know, acting on stage is so different than acting in the movies. It has nothing to do with, I mean, talent is just the beginning of it. It's a different technique. With a movie, the camera is five feet from your face. And in many cases, you know, there's enormous emphasis on doing small, subtle things. With a theater, you have to fill a thousand-seat theater, and you have to find a way to, basically what theater actors do is scream at the top of their lungs, but make it look to the audience like they're just talking at... um, at normal conversation level, and it's a real skill, um, and it's a real technique, and we've all seen uh, shows with stars where they couldn't do that, um, and uh, I feel an enormous burden not to not to do that to the audience or to the actor. You know, the last thing I really want is for an actor to come. It, it causes me agony when a star comes and works for us for no money and then doesn't get good reviews, particularly when they, I think they've done good work, and the critics in New York are tough. Is that uh, a disincentive for some actors then? I think so. I mean, I think I, I don't want to mention actors' names because I just don't think it's fair to them. I mean, I, sure. but, you know, there are certain actors we know who have done Broadway and gotten horrible reviews, and I think they've gone back to Hollywood saying, um, don't do it. Why should you do it? I mean, and then you still have to go out. You know, think about it. It's something I think about a lot. I'm not sure people not in theater think about it. But when you make a movie, um, even if it's a bad movie, by the time it comes out, you're on to your second or third job after the movie. It comes out eight or nine months later. 
And it's sad if it's not successful. It may hurt your career, but it's behind you. When you do a play and you don't get good reviews, the next night you're back up on that stage. And it's painful to be back up on stage when you don't get the good reviews, and then the audience response tends to change from good to bad, and people sometimes walk out, and they still have to keep doing the play. And it's an extraordinary amount of exposure that all of these people, famous and not famous, do. And, you know, as the more I do this, the more admiration I have for their, not just their talent, but their guts. And so, yes, when somebody gets panned and run out of town, they tend to go back and tell their friends in Hollywood, don't do theater, it doesn't pay, and it's more pressure and harder work, and the critics are brutal. But conversely, when the show is good, they do get good reviews. Do they come back to you and say, I want to be in another show? Yeah, and I think it also, you know, to be, this may sound self-serving to the theater, but I think it's true. I also think it helps their movie and television career. I really do. When they're acclaimed as great actors on the stage, I think even on the West Coast, that's given a certain, it's like an incredibly high-quality uh, approval, and I think it helps in their in their movies careers. There's no question in my mind about that too. Whether their agents view it that way is another question, because their agents take a percentage, and a percentage of twelve hundred fifty dollars a week is not a lot of money. I remember Harry Connick when he was just uh, in rehearsal for uh, the Pajama King, saying, "I never knew this could be so difficult. When I'm it's in a funny. concert, I can stop anytime I want. I can catch my breath. Here, I've got to keep going." He was finding a whole different discipline. Oh yeah, it's- and also think about it in a concert. Harry's playing to an audience. And in a play, he has to play to the person on stage next to him. He has to interact with the other actors. And he did it beautifully, but it didn't come naturally to him because it's something he's never done. He said his temptation was to walk out on the stage, look at the audience, say, hey, guys, how are you? you know, rather, <laughs> rather than yeah, playing the part. Yeah, if you him in concert, that's kind of what he He's incredible. So it's not as easy as it looks just if you're, if you're just talented. It, it takes other things. And, it's, uh, and you think somebody like Harry, what did he have to – God knows the guy is so successful. It, it took such sort of – guts and such I have such admiration for him wanting to do it or Antonio or and, and now Harry wants to do another musical you know he was supposed to do it this year I hope it happens a new Gershwin piece so yeah there's no question that if it goes well it can turn them on we were talking earlier about Roundabout's relationship to new plays and as recently as just a few years ago you were quoted as saying you know, developing plays was not your forte. It was not where your experience was. So I'm wondering how you're approaching, obviously, having now the off-Broadway spaces, both the large space and the new underground space, in terms of the kind of work that you're able to do there and, and the kind what you think you can offer to artists working at, at those theaters. Well, to answer the question uh, in a, in a um, succinct manner, um, I didn't ask it in a succinct no, no, manner. Feel yeah, free. It's still not my area of expertise. Um, and uh, largely the plays, the new plays at the Pels, are relatively mature plays. Um, even if the playwright is young-ish. Um, what do you mean by a mature play? Uh, a, a play that has already, um, in, at least in, in my opinion and others who work with me, um, is ready for major production as opposed to a play that needs 15 workshops and sort of starting from a seed and and... Um, something like the overwhelming J.T. Rogers play um, was a play that, uh, again, whatever you thought about it, was a play that was already very well constructed and and completed. And um, uh, I think it is different with the black box. There's no question about that. And one of the things that's happened is uh, we've I've started a very pleasant um, association with Robin Goodman, who has spent a lot of time developing new plays at Second Stage and MTC. Um, and she works with me part-time. She's also a very successful commercial producer. But she works with me part-time on the new plays and a specific emphasis on the black box theater. And and we do do a lot of readings and workshops. And, and frankly, she is much more equipped, I think, dramaturgically to give the playwrights the kind of notes and support that they need to take a play from 
uh, perhaps a kind of elemental phase um, into a um, into a play that's that's ready for production. And um, so I, I think that we have changed a bit because of her addition um, to the staff. And you spoke before about the huge subscription base. When you do something in the underground space, now you've done one show there so far, the terrific speech and debate, how much of your audience translates? Or is it really having a dip, your own little miniature theater company in the basement of the big theater company? More like a mini theater company. We don't put it on the subscription because we, we want to charge $20 a ticket and make it affordable to everybody. And, um, and so the show, Speech and Debate, in its initial 13 or 14 week run, completely sold out without offering it to subscribers. When we extended it, we did offer it to the subscribers if they wanted to come. But uh, because it's only 62 seats and we couldn't put it on our subscription even if we wanted to. Cause or you could run it for decades. For decades. Um, <laughs> it is kind of like having our own little uh, separate theater company. And it's been exciting. I mean, Speech and Debate was special. It was the first one, and it turned out so well. And it did everything we wanted. It gave this young playwright who had another job during the day, 27-year-old Brown graduate, uh, the opportunity to have this play done and get a first-class production. It got rave reviews, and now it's being done all over the country, and we've changed his life. And it's an incredible feeling. Now, obviously, that may not happen that successfully every time, but it is an incredible feeling when it happens. Well, with um, two Broadway houses, the Off-Broadway Pels and now the new Underground, the Off-Off-Broadway show, uh, Theater, you only have about, about eight slots a year for shows. You must be one of the most popular guys in town. <laughs> Your phone must be ringing off the hook with people saying, will you, will you do my show? Um, how do you decide when you put together a season what that season will be? Do you try to get a mix of classic shows and newer work? Well, we te- we, what we tend to do is, um, th- uh, in the Broadway theaters, which are five of our slots, we tend to do um, uh, revivals of plays and musicals exclusively. And, um, and, and usually we do the musicals at Studio 54. It, really what happens to give you, yes, I would like it to be balanced and I would like to have a comedy and two dramas and whatever. But, and within reason we try to do that. But the real answer is um, more than that, that because it's so complicated to get all the right artists, directors and actors and everybody to show up uh, at the right time. And we're on a subscription, so our schedule is not flexible. I mean, if an actor says, I'd love to do it, but I have a movie, you have to wait six weeks. Well, we can't wait six weeks. We have the subscription schedule. So uh, really, John, it's it's a question of having 20 or 30 projects sort of in the pipeline, for lack of a better way of putting it, and hoping that five of them come into place in any given season. And, and it's uh, it, it's actually quite a bit of pressure um, because you need a certain amount of plays to sell the subscription in advance and a certain number of names to sell the subscription and then you need names to sell the single tickets before the reviews and to take an example next year's production of Pal Joey I've been working on doing Pal Joey with Joe Mantello directing it with an adaptation by Richard Greenberg for 10 years Um, I won't bore you with why it took 10 years but it literally took 10 years to get to the point where we're producing that at Studio 54 now most people won't know that and it's irrelevant to them but it's relevant to me because it's taken me 10 years to do it and it's finally happening and you have a good cast you have Stockard Channing starring oh, yeah. Christian Hoff is playing Joey and Martha uh, Plimpton was a fabulous voice um, it's everything I wanted I, I actually did have uh, I'm not uh, often I, I'm not this visionary but I actually did specifically want Joe Mantello to direct Pal Joey and use the Richard Greenberg adaptation this was before Joe Mantello had ever directed a musical because I'm going back so far since then he's become 
you know, he directed Wicked and Assassins and won Tony Awards and everything. But at the time, this was my big idea. And it took 10 years to get the rights and 10 years to get the people assembled to do it at Roundabout. Now, sometimes with your, your shows being limited run, you have a hit. What do you do when you have a hit and you want to extend it? You've just recently moved 39 steps from your theater over to the court, so mm-hmm. that can run longer. But when you have other shows that are very popular, can you extend them? Can you find a way to make them run longer? We've, we've had very few cases where we've had huge hits and wanted to extend them, and the star agreed to extend them um, because uh, usually the stars work at our theater. One of the attractions is the limited engagement. For example, Pal Joey could have run, excuse me, Pal Joey, Pajama Game could have run another year, but Harry Connick didn't want to, you know, he wanted 20 weeks and out, which was fair. That was the deal that we made. And nobody wanted to replace Harry, which I also understand. Um, and Kelly didn't want to do it with anybody else, which I also understand. Um, so generally speaking, um, the shows with the stars just are by definition closed when they're going to close, even if they're selling out. We've had a few exceptions uh, with something like 12 Angry Men, where it was such a colossal hit. And we were very fortunate in a way. The show that was supposed to come after it, uh, the production fell apart, and we were able to just extend it at the American Airlines Theater for another four or five months. Um, had that production not fallen apart, we would have had to have moved it, which would have cost a lot of money uh, because I would never essentially cancel the next production just because we had a hit. I mean, we have a lot of artists lined up to do it, and I wouldn't cancel on them any more than I would expect them to back out on me. So the subscription concept does sort of lock you in to a season. And going for stars, quote-unquote, does by definition, um, uh, you know, usually they're going on to movies so they can make some money. Since you brought up 12 Angry Men, you had a very successful run here in New York. Then it went on tour, not for one, but for two years. Mm-hmm. And now it's going for a third We're year, hoping I guess. for a third for year, third not year. next year, but the year after. It's been hugely successful for us. First time we've ever produced our own tour. It's been a whole different experience for me because I've never done that before. And it's been exciting, frankly, to bring, not only is it a great production that Scott did, but it's exciting to bring it to a lot of these markets where they rarely get plays. And frankly, if they do get plays, they get, um, oh God, I, I don't know how to say this, but they get some horrific productions which, with huge ex-television stars that you wouldn't want to see. Um, so to bring something of some artistic and literary value to the road uh, has been fun for us, and they've embraced it so much. And even though it didn't sell out in most of these huge musical theater houses, it did well and got rave reviews in every single city, and they've been so happy to have it. So it's been a great experience. Why did you decide to do that show as, as a tour? I actually thought, you know, Scott, again, it was Scott's vision. I never thought 12 Angry Men would be particularly successful. I thought our subscribers would like it, and the critics would say it's an old chestnut, and there goes Roundabout doing an old chestnut, frankly. And, of course, it became what it became, and I thought, well, if this show can be this appealing uh, in cynical old New York, uh, I actually remember thinking, you know, I think it would be appealing all around the country, And um, but I had never done a tour. So I, I spoke to my wife, who, who is a commercial general manager and had some experience with touring, and asked her advice, and she put me in touch with... Um, with Meredith Blair at the booking office, and they kind of led us through how to do a tour. And they said, if you can get a star, we think we can book it, because it was a big hit in New York. And um, and we got Richard Thomas, which was wouldn't have happened without him. And he committed for that first year, and then it just sort of exploded. Um, so we all, again, we something we sort of fell into, like a lot of our other productions. You know, I guess there was a degree of risk, because we had to pay for the tour. But it all worked out, and we made money, and uh, I'd love to do it again, frankly. As we talk about risk, I want to ask you about 
an experience that you had about 10 years ago where it was publicly announced that you were going to be leaving Roundabout to go to work at Livevent, the Canadian uh, theatrical and entertainment company. Uh, it did not work out uh, in terms of the life of Livevent. Mm. It wasn't that you were you had even gotten there, as far as I know. But I'm just wondering about, as we talk about this 25-year span at Roundabout, when you make the decision to leave and then decide to stay, what did that mean for you in, in your career? And, and how easy or difficult was it to to end up staying after telling everybody you were going? Um, it was, well, uh, it, it was just a hard year. What happened was I decided to go to Livevent because um, I thought I thought what they had created um, was a sort of, and I still do, um, was sort of this unique experiment with having a, what do they call it, a vertically integrated commercial theater where um, essentially a commercial theater that operated uh on a artist in an artistic sense, like a not for profit. In other words, they created all their work, they self produced, they owned their real estate, and they did their tours. and And of course, it was ten times the size of Roundabout at the time. So I thought, what an incredible opportunity to try to to create recreate sort of the Roundabout type model in a commercial um, fashion. Of course, what I had no idea of seems to be the story of my life is that. You know, they had the depth of financial problems that they had. So um, shortly after getting there, I was hired by Mike Ovitz and Roy Furman. So the, the theory was that I was going to do Roundabout and Livevent for a year while I phased myself out of Roundabout. And it was extremely painful because I love Roundabout, but I thought, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and maybe I should take it. And shortly after getting to Livevent, it became clear the place was going to tank. Um, <clears throat> so I obviously made it clear that at that point that I was never that I wasn't leaving Roundabout, which um, I probably was difficult for the people at Roundabout who went sort of on this roller coaster ride. Um, and but on the other hand, I couldn't leave Livevent because I was the only sort of artistic person left there, and particularly Fosse was out of town at the time, and there was nobody, literally nobody, to take care of the show except me. Um, so I felt an obligation to at least stay with Livevent. And they, of course, then declare Chapter 11, so I'm probably the only person who's been through two Chapter 11s <laughs> at theater. Um, but theirs ended in liquidation, really. Um, I mean, being sold. And um, it was an unpleasant year because I did two jobs, and I probably did both of them not so well. Um, and I think probably um, some of the board members were pissed off that I um, sort of put the theater through that roller coaster, although they were very gracious and never said it to me. But also, I have to say, as much as I appreciated what I had at Roundabout before I left – at the risk of sounding really corny, it made me appreciate more than ever what I have at Roundabout, not just in terms of having a job that's stable, but just having this incredible support with the people at the theater and the board and the opportunity to kind of do whatever I want to do. And I've been so fortunate that the board has let me grow the theater to meet my sort of own ambitions like doing musicals or new plays or whatever rather than most people's career track, which involves moving around to sort of advance their career. I mean, that's the way it normally works. I have been so lucky. So the whole live event was kind of an experience and also sort of appreciating even more what I had at home. <laughs> and did you end up coming back and starting your own vertical integration model at Roundabout? I mean, we've talked about already four theaters. It's it's public that you're uh, in negotiation for, for another theater mm -hmm. uh, beginning next season. Did that become the model to, to create to create that at home? Well, I guess it was always – it really honestly was always the model before that. I did, so I, I don't know that I took much from the Livent experience other than 
uh, be careful when you make a move like that what you're getting yourself into. I mean, it all. But I, I, I will plead to being. I, I don't think I'm uh, particularly power hungry or particularly um, egocentric in a sort of macro sense. Although I have a normal ego, um, but I, I do. I am ambitious, and I like. Uh, I like to be able to do as much work as possible and as broad a range as possible for selfish reasons as well as altruistic reasons. And so, yes, I mean, having the stability in the real estate and having, frankly, the ability to control our own destiny and not have to go through, you know, landlords who have different interests perhaps than we do um, and um, and being able to produce what we want to produce and take a certain degree of risk and all those things that I've talked about, um, I, I, I do sort of take that seriously and, and want that. And, you know, my feeling is uh, that... There are so many talented people out there who want to work in the theater, um, actors, directors, playwrights, designers, uh, that there's just a huge amount of talent. So I don't feel like uh, we're overexpanding. I feel like the more opportunity we can give to people while still obviously saying financially solvent and not losing control of the institution, the more we're serving the community. So when we do the black box, it's just it's giving you know one or two playwrights a year of the hundreds that are out there and worthy an opportunity to do something. And we're not replacing Playwrights Horizons or other theaters that are integral to developing new playwrights. It's just adding on and providing a service to a community that needs the support. So I feel like the more the merrier as long as we're able to keep up both the artistic and financial integrity. Well, it was 25 years ago this month that you began at the Roundabout mm-hmm. and obviously made great advances over that period of time. What's on your to-do list for the future? Well, I think um, uh, there's no question that uh, management-wise the to-do list is to build an endowment, which we don't really have, so that because we now sort of have a structural deficit and, and we're sort of dependent every year on raising a huge amount of money to break even, and even then... Um, we don't break even unless we have a really successful year at the box office. So this year, we did have a successful season, and we will probably just about break even. Next year, we're starting the year with a, a large deficit projected, and we sort of start from zero again. So the management side is, is to um, is is to build an endowment. Um, and artistically, I think it's to um, sort of concur- obviously keep doing what we're doing, but also be able to do some of the larger, more adventurous plays that are just again we do have to sort of censor our artistic um, mission not not censor because of the nature of the material but because of the cost of it so uh, you know there are so many great plays uh, it's not a problem that theaters that do new plays have to worry about they have other problems but our problem is that a lot of the great plays have between 50 and 40 people in them and we can't afford to do three or four of those in every year um, I'd also like to tiptoe into new musicals but again the kind of new, new musicals roundabout would do which are uh, sort of more on the artistic end of the spectrum, which by definition probably means they're less, um, they're going to sell less tickets and they're expensive, which by definition means we're having trouble affording doing it. We had done a lot of the workshopping for Spring Awakening, which was a musical I loved and still love, and uh, ultimately we couldn't afford to do it, and somebody else did, it, and it's been hugely successful, and I couldn't be happier for them, but you know, it makes me a little sad that we didn't sort of take that leap and that risk. Um, so I, I think artistically there are plenty of places to expand, but I must say I do think about the financial thing every day because it's my responsibility to keep the theater solvent and to make sure that all the people you know, who work so hard get paid. Todd, Todd Hames, Artistic Director of The Roundabout, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Todd.
Thanks, Todd. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.